Reading today comes from Psalm 121. It can be found on page nine of your bulletin as well as projected above. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will, never slumber, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Carrie. Well, it's a great privilege to have David Billingsley here to preach for us this afternoon. Uh, David's a good friend, and i um, just excited that he can be here to worship with us and to preach on this psalm. Um, David works for RUF. He is a RUF International Campus Minister at UT Dallas and has been there. This is your fourth, end of your fourth year, right? Yep, been there four years and uh, doing a great work amongst international students at UT Dallas and um, has just done a great job. He and Meredith are here with their girls and um, I would love for you all to meet them after the service. So, Dave, come on up. It is a privilege to be here with you and to get to preach today. Um, it's no secret that Trinity loves RUF, and uh, I have felt that love from uh, everyone from Brian Davis to members here who I've met over the last four years, and so thank you for those of you who uh, support RUF International at UTD. Um, and yeah, like Andy said, I'd love to meet you and tell you what RUF International is like. If this is new to you and you've never heard about it before, I'd love to tell you more about it. But um, would you please uh, pray with me? Our gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the bread of heaven. Amen. So at the very end of last year, I read a book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. And it's only about 100 pages long. It's mostly artwork. And then these comments between the four characters as they kind of go through a journey. And it's not clear to me if this book is for kids or for adults or if the ambiguity is on purpose. Um, but I was surprised when I read it how it moved me so deeply and how these characters talked to each other and found friendship. And I decided my family needs to own this book. And so I bought it and I read it to my family and my daughters are nine and six. They got teary-eyed. And uh, I looked at my wife and she's like, that's it? Like, that was it? That's the book? Like, I don't get it. It's just kind of rambling thoughts and sounds like someone's trying too hard. Um, and so it's a pretty polarizing book. And I found out, when looking on Amazon, the polarization is there as well. There's uh, some pretty harsh one-star reviews. Um, so if you've read it and you don't like it, I won't take it personally. But I found it to be very moving. And this one part that really hit me is when the boy asked the horse this question. He asked the horse, what's the bravest thing you've ever said? 
And the horse had a one-word answer. Help, said the horse. That was it. And we really, really, really don't like to ask for help, do we? And I don't mean just in some kind of cliche way. You know, not just in like, oh yeah, dads don't like to ask for directions or help at the grocery store, although that's, that's true, right? There's something to that. Uh, but we're taught by Disney, by school, sadly even by other Christians at times, that we should be able to do everything on our own, by ourselves. Find the strength within. Uh, you shouldn't need any help. And I'm not trying to just dunk on Disney or school or other Christian traditions or anything, but rather just point to what we all, I think, should know well, is that our culture wants to catechize us to not believe in God, but to believe in ourselves. So it is quite countercultural, actually, and a brave thing to admit your weakness, your inability, and ask for help. And this is how our psalm, Psalm 121, begins today. The author assumes he needs help. Where does my help come? But before we go any further in this psalm, I want to ask you a question. How did this psalm strike you when it was read today? I know it's familiar to many of us, but how does it land on you today? I think there's probably a range of responses, um, but I think if we boiled down our answers, we'd kind of end up one of two ways. One uh, is that this psalm can bring immense comfort. Uh, it's not hard to understand that God will keep you and that can bring immense comfort. But the second response I think we could have is one of confusion. Why is it that my life doesn't seem to match this psalm? Maybe that's where you're at. That I'm confused because it seems like God really isn't there the way this psalm describes. So wherever you're at today, that's what we're going to look at is these two things, how there's comfort that this psalm can bring us, and then what do we do with our confusion? When at times hearing these words or words like this seem to be just disconnected from our experience in our lives. So kids, if you're taking notes or listening, there's three things I want you to be listening for as we continue. The first is something about stars. The second is something about sleep. And then finally, something from a pastor in China. So stars, sleep, and a pastor in China. So first of all, the comfort that comes from this psalm. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you see these famous words, I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Now, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled uh, in the commentaries about why the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Maybe you've thought, oh, it seems obvious to me, but... There are actually multiple views. Uh, one is that the hills could be a place of fear. And the psalmist knows that um, on his way, in his journey, that he still has a lot of adversity in his way. And there's more to come. Another reason that he might lift his eyes to the hills and ask where does his help come from is the hills could have been a place of idol worship. 
There's lots of that we see in the Old Testament of the high places, of the places where other gods were worshipped. Uh, and there's plenty of the Bible to suggest just that. Or, or could it be that the Psalms, or this Psalm, and the, the author is look, lifting his eyes to the hills because it's helping him continue to lift his gaze beyond the hills to his God? It might be that. Or is he on his way to Jerusalem? This is a Psalm of Ascent. As he's journeying to Jerusalem, the hills he's talking about are the hills of Jerusalem. And he knows, I'm getting closer to the city of God. I am getting closer to this festival or this feast. And so I am asking, where does my help come from? Well, Tim Keller, in his little book on the psalm, simply says, whether the hills point to threat or to help, the point is that the hills are nothing compared to the one who made the hills. And that's what verse 2 says is getting at that my help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth that whatever is making the psalmist feel his need he calls this to mind that the God creator and author of the universe can be trusted and is the God who comes to the aid of his people and so I want to draw a point of application like right from the get-go not gonna wait till the end we're just gonna go there now Right from the get-go with these two verses, this psalm is inviting us to repent. One of my favorite things about the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith is how when it talks about repentance, it talks about repentance unto life. See, when God calls us to repent, it is an invitation to life. And this psalm is inviting us to repent of our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, our self-everything to turn away from our phones and to the Lord, to turn away from our self-medicating with our addictions and earthly pleasures, and to turn to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And don't rush by that he's the maker of heaven and earth. Sit with this for a moment. This is a psalm, it's poetry. It's meant for us to live in and dwell in the imagery and take it in and think about it. Like, have you ever watched Planet Earth or watched a documentary about space or just anything at all that makes you stand in awe and wonder of God as creator and all that he's made? Did you know that your body has 30 to 40 trillion cells? That's just one person. Or that the ocean, the deepest part of the ocean is seven miles deep. So if you put Mount Everest in that trench, there'd still be a mile above it until you got to the surface. And that the ocean, yeah, it covers about 70% of our globe, but we've only explored 20% of it. The National Ocean Service last February said 80% of the ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. Now keep imagining the ocean Imagine the coastline. Take yourself to your favorite beach. Okay, my family's going to Florida next month, so I can take myself and imagine the beach. Um, And think about the grains of sand at the beach, and then add up all the grains of sand on Earth, and there's actually more stars in the universe than grains of sand in our world. The closest galaxy to ours, Andromeda, is 2.5 million light years away. 
And in Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 26, God says, To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God knows each star by name. And this is the God the psalmist is saying our help comes from. And there's another thing you can't just rush past at the beginning of this psalm. And it's uh, this word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters. Every time you see the word Lord like that in the Old Testament, and I know many of you know this, but don't rush past it. It's not a synonym for God. Or simply a way to talk about God as master. Or another name for God in some generic sense. It's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that he revealed to his people during the time of the Exodus. And the point of seeing the word Lord is to remind us that God, who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, made promises to his people. He made promises to Abraham and his children. And he rescued them from slavery and oppression by his mighty hand, miraculously bringing them through the wilderness to the promised land. And this is the same God, the same Lord, who today, in 2022, comes to our help now. This creator is the faithful, covenant-keeping God. And there's a nod to this in verse 4, where the psalmist points out again that the Lord keeps Israel we're supposed to reflect on this promise-keeping faithfulness of Yahweh. This is the one from whom our help comes. And then listen to the ways in verses 3 through 8 that this God who created the world and acted in history is personally caring for his people. That word keep that comes up over and over in, in Hebrew, it means to protect or to watch over. And not watch over like observe, but watch over as in guard. It comes up six times in this psalm. It's obviously one of the key themes. And it's that the Lord who created the world and acted for his people is keeping you. And it's something he's doing all the time in an all-encompassing way. He won't let your foot be moved. He never sleeps nor slumbers. Day and night, verse 6, tell us he's keeping you. He's keeping you from all evil, verse 7. Keeping your life, keeping your going out and your coming in now and forevermore. This psalm reminded me of a children's book uh, my mom used to read me. And a book that she's read to my daughters now. It's called Jesus Loves Me All the Time. And it looks at different moments of the day. And says, Jesus loves me at lunchtime, playtime, bedtime, anytime, every time, all the time. That's when Jesus loves me. And this psalm is telling us so clearly that anytime, every time, all the time, that's when the Lord is keeping and guarding us. Another thing to highlight that can bring us deep comfort from this psalm is when it talks about the Lord not sleeping or slumbering. Uh, my wife and I have read this psalm to our kids at bedtime uh, multiple times to remind them that even though they need sleep and even though mom and dad need sleep, that God doesn't. 
so they can rest knowing that God is still watching over them and caring for them even when they sleep. But something I didn't know until I was researching this psalm last week is that there's more going on there than just that. There's more to it. It's likely that there's a contrast being made between the Lord and the other gods of the ancient Near East. See, one of the things the gods in the other religions and the other cultures around Israel needed was sleep. It was their divine right. Every parent has felt this way, right? You know you were about to say amen when I said that. Um, I know when I'm trying to take a nap on a weekend, I tell my kids, please don't wake me up unless it's an emergency. It's not because I don't care. It's because I'm limited and I need to sleep. And I feel at times that I'm owed sleep. I just can't keep going. And these other gods from these other nations around Israel they needed their Z's. And if you woke them up, you were in big trouble. You did not want to wake up your God. If you bothered them, that was a problem. But do you see what's being said here in Psalm 121? That you are never a problem or bother to the Lord. You do not annoy him when he needs to sleep because he doesn't need to sleep. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And he doesn't need a cat nap to make it through the day. And there's a lot more we could get into with the specifics of verses 3 through 8, but just to kind of put our arms around it, this psalm is often called a psalm of confidence because the psalmist is expressing his trust in the Lord and embraces these promises of God's protection and ever-faithful keeping of his people. And this is meant to be a source of great comfort for us. But then comes the confusion. Maybe not for you today, but likely today. If you're anything like me, there's a sense of confusion when reading this psalm. Because in our experience of this world and in our own lives, in our various journeys and pilgrimages, it often seems that God is not keeping us. I mean, we just talked about how God doesn't sleep, but it often seems like he is asleep. It says in verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil, but how can that be? We've all seen the news the last few weeks. How do we read and make sense of 19 fourth graders and two teachers being murdered? What about another racist attack in Buffalo? What about our Taiwanese brothers and sisters who were attacked at church in Orange County? What about the rampant abuse that's coming to light in churches? And this is just recent news, right? There was and is COVID and a war in Ukraine and a famine in, a famine in Yemen, etc., etc., etc. And what about all the things in your life that don't make it on the news? Divorce, whether your own or your parents' divorce. Children running away from the Lord, leaving the church. A cancer diagnosis. 
the mental health struggles you have or a family member has, or just wanting to have kids and not being able to, or that difficult work environment you have to go to every day and your boss is just the worst. Like, is God really keeping us? Maybe he is just watching and not watching over us. Maybe he's distant if he's real at all. Or maybe these promises are true. You believe that these promises are true, and you think you're just doing something wrong. You're not praying the right way or enough. You're not reading the right books. You don't have enough faith. Is that why we face confusion? Or what do I say in reading this psalm to the international students I minister to who will face beatings, isolation, being kicked out of their families, be thrown in prison perhaps, and maybe even become martyrs for becoming Christians? I was reading a New York Times article about one of the countries that our students are from at UTD, and it was talking about how, quote, Anti-Christian vigilantes are sweeping through villages, storming churches, burning Christian literature, attacking schools, and assaulting worshipers. In many cases, the police and members of this country's governing party are helping them. Government documents and dozens of interviews revealed. In church after church, the very act of worship has become dangerous, despite constitutional protections for freedom of religion. How do I tell them God will keep them from all evil? What do we do in the confusion? Well, one way I want to start answering that is that you need to know that this is common in Scripture. This is a common thing for people in the Bible to express their confusion. And actually expressing our confusion to God is a good thing. Uh, J. Todd Billings, in his book, Rejoicing and Lament, which has deeply impacted me, has helped me see that bringing our laments, our cries, our grief, our confusion, does not show a lack of faith. Because you're taking it to God. It's when you don't take it to God that that shows a lack of faith. And it's the way we pour out our hearts to the Lord that reveal our faith. Take Psalm 44, 23, for example, where the psalmist says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 130, another psalm of ascent, says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So don't believe the lie, Christian, that it's up to you to muster up more faith or that you're doing something wrong or that God is bothered by your grief and confusion. And remember these words from Jesus Christ, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Because if it was just about us trying to find the right words to say or a better way to pray or something like that, it would just be another form of self-sufficiency we need to repent of. Another way we can feel like we're in control instead of casting ourselves onto the Lord for help. 
And we need to remember what this psalm is. It's a psalm of ascent. It's in this collection of psalms because these psalms were meant for the pilgrim people. Remember? It's for the people who are on their way. On their way to Jerusalem, but they're not there yet. So they need reminders on the way. Brothers and sisters, we are exiles and sojourners now. And we're far too eager to try to make heaven happen here in our own lives. Instead of longing for that city that is to come. That city with a firm foundation whose designer and builder is God, according to Hebrews 11. The confusion can come when we believe that we can find our home here and now and not have to live by faith for that better future home. And we can also so quickly forget the assumption from verse 1 that we talked about, that we need help, that we need help on our journey. The psalmist assumes and expresses confidence in the Lord, not because everything is okay, but because he needs help. See, the psalm is in the context of the confusion. It's only in coming to grips with the confusion and to not deny the confusion that this psalm even means anything. It's because the world and we ourselves are so broken beyond repair that we cannot fix ourselves and we need help from the Lord. I don't think there's much comfort from this psalm until we get to that point of confusion. Because if everything's great and you're doing fine and you don't need God and you don't need help, then who cares if the Lord is your keeper and protector? But if you're at the place of needing a guardian, then be comforted by this psalm. See, the confusion we feel doesn't negate the comfort. It makes sense of the comfort. That no matter what you're facing, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, has you. He's got you. Nothing can thwart him or ruin his plan for you, and he will get you to the promised land. He will get you to Mount Zion. He will bring you into that new city, that new Jerusalem, and that's how he keeps you. See, the, the assurance is not that we can power our way through, but that God will hold on to us and keep us through it all. Eugene Peterson, in talking about this psalm, helps us understand this point of contact between the confidence we can have and the confusion we face. He says, The promise of the psalm, and both Hebrews and Christians have always read it this way, is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, will be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. No literature is more realistic and honest in facing the, facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. What it promises is preservation from all the evil in them. On every page of the Bible, there is recognition that faith encounters troubles. And this is how we can embrace and understand things then like Romans 8, 28 and 29. That we can know that for those who love God, for those who've been called according to his purpose, he works all things together for good. All things. 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he is committed to conforming you to the image of Christ. And every single thing that happens is him working for your good and his glory. And friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. That the Lord who keeps us from all evil didn't keep himself from all evil. This Lord who made heaven and earth stepped out of heaven into earth and he stepped into the confusion we all face and he came in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and showed us how far he would go to keep his covenant promises. That Jesus came to earth to take the curse of death we deserve, to take the sin, to take the evil of his people on himself and to die on the cross for us while we were still sinners and absorb the wrath, the righteous wrath of God for us in our place and remove our shame. And he did it all because he wanted to, because he loves you. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we have the answer to our confusion. There's this great hymn that I'm sure many of you know called The Church's One Foundation, and it has this beautiful line that says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for, his, for her life he died. And see, God has shown us that he can be trusted, that he keeps his promises, that he is with us, and he will keep us because he stepped into the middle of history to take that terror, that horror, that evil on himself. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're given a preview of what's coming, that our hope is not in this world, but the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But this is not true for everyone. These promises are not for humanity in general, but for those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. And that might be something you need to wrestle with today. Because if you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is as good as it gets. But when we understand the lengths to which Jesus Christ went to keep us from all evil, we can know that God didn't just rescue Israel back then, but has rescued us now from sin and death and the devil, and that we are bound for the promised land, and he will keep us and protect us because he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion. See, no matter what gets thrown at you, nothing, no nothing can separate you now from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 8, who is to condemn Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. It's what we've been talking about with the ascension, that Jesus is interceding for us now. He's ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father as our faithful and sympathetic high priest. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He's the good shepherd who doesn't lose any of his sheep. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Paul goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Can any confusion separate us from the love of Christ? Can any evil get in his way? Can any death or tragedy that befall us ruin us? No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I recently finished a book uh, called Faith in the Wilderness that came out last month. It's a collection of these kind of sermon-like letters from Reformed Chinese pastors who faced intense suffering and persecution. And the first chapter in the book is written by Guo Muyan, a Presbyterian house church minister. And that chapter is entitled, Let Us Fall into the Hand of the Lord. And he says this, and this is how I'll close. The Christian hope lies in this. We are not stronger or purer than others. Instead, rather than believing in ourselves, We believe in Jesus, who upholds us when we fall, who comforts us when we give up, who strengthens us when our strength is drained, who loves us when we are in pain, who does not give us up, even when we are hopeless about ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our faithful mediator and high priest. We thank you for taking the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We thank you for taking our pain, our sin, our shame. We praise you for being our redeemer, and we are in awe that you would now call us friends and even bring us into your family. So as our risen and ascended king and brother, we bring our confusion to you now. We bring it to you knowing not only do you sympathize with us, but to you belongs the power and glory that you've always had with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Comfort us by your Spirit. Send out your light and your truth in our dark world and help us. Help us to ask you for help. Help us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at your return. May you, Jesus, with the Father and the Spirit, receive all the praise, honor, and glory now and forevermore. Amen.